0: why do you do it as a rock star? Dress up, dance around, put yourself on stage, put your secrets into songs for everyone to hear. Share it all, good and bad. Maybe it's the fame. When George Michael dies, he sold more than 115 million records. Everyone knows him. Everyone remembers the quiffs and the leather jackets and the stubble. Maybe it's the money. He's got houses in the poshest parts of London and the nicest parts of the countryside. There's the place on a beach in Sydney. There's the mansions he's had in California. He's got enough to never work again. Maybe it's being adored, feeling loved, feeling special. Standing on that stage and hearing thousands sing those secrets and those songs back at you. Maybe it's to be someone else A new name, a different look, a better you, the version you'd like to be, rather than the one you are. And then you get all those things. And all you want to do is escape. Because George Michael is the songs, and the dancing, and the dressing up. He's the fame, and the money, and the being someone else. And he does it all, but it's not what he wants, not when he gets there. So his story is about lots of things, about being an immigrant son, about an awkward kid transformed by music, about a pop star with a voice that can make you happy and sad and all the shades in between. It's about a gay man in a world that sometimes wants to pretend everyone is straight. But it's about freedom more than anything else. Freedom to escape where you came from and what they want you to be. Freedom to do what you want all the time, to make your own rules, not the ones they try to push on you. Freedom to be yourself, not just hidden away, but when everyone is looking. To do nothing sometimes, except sit at home and smoke and drink and get older, and to be honest. When that's good, when it's bad, when it's ridiculous and embarrassing, Because if you can't be you, then what's the point of all the rest of it? Here's where we first meet George, when he's not called George at all. He's the new kid in Class 2A1, brought in on his own by the teacher. Big hair, glasses, chubby, blushing because everyone is staring at him. In the class register is Yorgo Kyriakos Panayotu. Then it gets shortened when he sits down next to a kid called Andrew Richley. Of Course it does. Yorgo becomes Yogurt, becomes Yog. So that's who he is in his comprehensive school in Hertfordshire, and that's who his first mate is. They're different in lots of ways. Andrew is confident, he's outgoing. Yog is shy, doesn't fit in. But the stuff that pulls them together too, Yog's dad is a Greek Cypriot. He's changed his own name to Jack Panos, makes things easier. Makes him one of us, not one of them. Andrew's dad, he's got an Egyptian father, an Italian mum. His real surname's Zacharia, but he knows immigrants have to fit in in Britain in the 1970s. So when he's on the bus home and he sees a street sign for Ridgely Gardens, he borrows that too. That's the dads, and then there's the music. When he's eight, Yog is obsessed with insects and bugs. He collects them in jam jars from the field behind the house. Then he trips one day and bangs his head and suddenly all he can think about is music. Melodies and rhythms and chords. It's like something has flipped in his brain. Andrew loves David Bowie and Queen. Yog likes Bowie and Queen and Elton John. He tapes the Top 40 off the radio every Sunday afternoon. So when Andrew says to him, Yogg, we're forming a band, he's in. Gigs in the local scout hut, practising in front of the mirror, dressing up and dancing. School's nowhere near as much fun. Neither is the obvious alternative. Yog washes dishes in his dad's restaurant, lasts two days. He gets a job in the stockroom at BHS and is sacked for not wearing the company shirt and tie. He becomes an usher at the Empire Cinema in Watford, hiding in the dark, watching other people getting the fame and money and adoration. Something has to change. Yog thinks of himself as a fat Greek kid with a monobrow that his sister shaved down the middle. That's not gonna work. So he looks at Bowie, who started as David Jones. He looks at Elton, who was Reg Dwight. He looks at Freddie Mercury, who began as Farrokh Bulsara. And he changes too. First, he's George Panos. That's what he says on their band's first single, Wham Rap, by G. Panos and A. Ridgely. Then he moves on again. Yogis for Andrew. Yorgios Kyriakos is for his mum and dad. For everyone else, he'll be George Michael. Here's what he'll say years later looking back. I created a man the world could love if they chose to. Someone who could realise my dreams and make me a star. And that's freedom. To escape where you came from and what they want you to be. And he loves it, to begin with. There's a photo he's seen. It's of David Cassidy when he's the biggest pop star in Britain, looking down at hundreds of screaming fans looking up at him. Slim, smiling, adored. That's the dream for George. Everything he wants. Everything he needs. So when Wham! do Top of the Pops the first time, he's not bothered that their hotel is some dos house at a tenner a night, or there's no free clothes, or they have to be there at half seven in the morning, 12 hours before the show actually starts. George looks at his bandmate and he says this, Andrew, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. He was always obsessed with the charts. Now he's obsessed about where he is in them. The songs start flowing and they come from everywhere. Club Tropicana, that's Club 1830 Holidays in a four minute tune. It sells 400,000 copies, but it only gets to number four. Not good enough. You take the inspiration where you find it. Andrew wants to lie in one morning, leaves a note for his mum. Because he's had a few, the note doesn't make sense. He writes, Wake me up, up, before you go-go. That's their first number one. He writes another, the tune popping into his head as he gets on a bus. His sister teases him about it, calls it tuneless whisper. That goes to number one too. Down is his first solo record this time. Sells 1.3 million. He's watching the football one night at his mum's. Halfway through the match, he runs upstairs to his bedroom and his old tape deck. There's an intro and a chorus in his head. That's how Last Christmas starts. Almost two million copies for that one. And it's all good, the fame. The dressing up in big white T-shirts with Choose Life printed on them. The thousands singing his songs back to him. He's doing what he wanted to do. He's not a fat kid with glasses. Not anymore. Except, in his head, he is. When they shoot the video for last Christmas, all snow and sledges and bad jumpers, he watches the rushes back and makes them cut any shots where his hair looks big or his stomach looks fat. When they fly to Miami to shoot Careless Whisper, let's give it its proper name, he hates his hair so much, he gets his sister flown over to style it. The delay costs 40 grand. He gets through ten different sax players for the solo on the track before he finds one he's happy with. You do stuff for fame that you don't expect. On stage, he puts a shuttlecock down his shorts. He pulls it out and flicks it into the front rows. Funny the first time you do it. Not the 20th time. Not when they expect it. Not when they demand it. There are always girls at his mum's house. Too many, all the time. One woman breaks into his home seven times. He sees her walking down the road in his clothes. When they tour China, big deal, the first Western band ever to go there, no one dances and no one knows the words. They make no money because the government wants to pay them in Chinese bicycles. George doesn't want this freedom. It's not an escape. It's a new prison. So he starts staying at the hotel when everyone else goes out. He ditches the white t-shirts. He ditches Wham. Andrew, I love you, but I need to do the next bit on my own. In comes the stubble and the leather jackets and the shades. He plays at being a rock star. He has a launch party for his new album, Faith. The drinks bill comes to £100,000. That's what the tabloids say. The new songs move it on. Not for kids anymore, for women, for men, but they're just as big, and there's even more singing them back to him. But none of it works for him. He's 25 years old, rich, famous, and adored. And all he talks about is this feeling of emptiness. He says, I guess loneliness is really intensified if you're being admired by thousands of people every night very loudly and then going back to your hotel room alone. It's time he made his own rules. The next album is different. Even if you don't know what's going on, he's telling you. There's the title, Listen Without Prejudice. There's the cover, no photo of his face, no mention of his name, no words at all. Just an image of a crowded beach, people staring back at you. There's the videos, no obsessing about hair in his size this time. It's just not there. The first single, Praying for Time, a black screen with the words playing over the top. The second one, Freedom 90, you see the leather jacket, but in flames. You see the jukebox from the Faith video, it explodes. And when the song starts, it's models. Cindy Crawford, Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington, they're the ones dancing, they're the ones dressing up and down. So he's not there, but he is. You listen to the words and his secrets are being shared, good and bad and ugly. He sings about being every schoolgirl's joy, about making it big with his mate. But he sings about lies and fantasies too. About how he's got to be happy, how there's someone he's forgotten to be. And he sings it so well. And the piano riff is so good and the video so unforgettable that it almost makes it worse. He's running away, but so prettily, you can't stop watching. He refuses to tour. It doesn't matter. Even that brings more attention. Frank Sinatra writes an open letter to him in the LA Times. That's how big Yorgios Kyriakos Panayotou is now. Here's what Sinatra says. No more talk about the tragedy of fame. The tragedy of fame is when no one turns up and you're singing to the cleaning lady. But Yorgios has changed. The record contract he signed when he was 18 and working in the cinema in Watford, that's still holding him tight. He still owes them six more solo albums. That's a career. That's a life. That's not freedom. So he takes the record label to court, I want to be me, not your rules, but mine. I need to escape. The numbers are astonishing. Money? He's grossed £100 million for Sony. But the label gets 52.5% of everything he makes. George? He gets 7.4%. It gets messy, like it was always going to. Sony say he's got writer's block. The president of CBS, the record company that Sony own, someone says he calls George that faggot client of yours. George points out the costs of recording his albums and songs come out of his money, but that Sony still own the recordings. He says he has no right to resign, not in this job. He talks about professional slavery. The judge, he sides with the establishment, with the rules. Across 280 pages of his verdict, he says George had legal advice. He'd renegotiated the contract. He always seemed happy. So George stays and the music stops for a long time.
2: This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works, and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com rockstarpod. Hello Rockstar listeners, it is Tom here. Now I'm one of the writers on the show and was behind quite a few of the episodes, ones like George Michael, John Lennon, Donny Hathaway and Otis Redding. I wanted to tell you quickly about DistroKid, who we've partnered with to provide Rockstar listeners with a special deal that we think you will love. Are you a musician and wondering how you can get more bang for your buck with your music? Well, get yourself on DistroKid. That's D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D. DistroKid is revolutionising the music business. It's the easiest way for musicians to get music onto places like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, well, you name it, they can get it there. You get unlimited uploads, you'll enjoy more features than any other music distributor, and you'll get to keep 100% of your earnings. Here are just some of the things that it lets you do. Okay, easily pay your collaborators with a special feature called splits. Send huge files to anyone with their InstaShare feature. Make mini videos to use on your socials. And stop sneaky thieves stealing your music and using it without your permission with their DistroLock feature. There's also an app where you can see your DistroKid account in one place. Check your Apple and Spotify stats and withdraw earnings. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So head to the Apple Store or Google Play to download it. And here is the best bit. They're offering you guys a special deal. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rock star to get 30% off your first year. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash death Death of a Rockstar, for 30% off your first year.
0: George has sung all about the secrets, apart from one. This is a world that sometimes wants to pretend everyone is straight. Elton John, he's married three times. Freddie Mercury, he's not out until the very end. George dances for girls and sells records to girls and gets famous singing songs to girls. He sleeps with them too for a long time. Partly because he can. Partly because he's not sure. Until he's 24, until the Faith album is huge, he thinks he might be bisexual. He's fallen in love with a woman at least twice. Or so he thinks. Then he falls in love with a man. And he realises that none of those things before had been close to love. He's at the Rock in Rio concert in 1991. Huge gig. All the big names there. Hundreds of thousands of fans. And on the front row, there's a man he can't stop staring at. He's called Anselmo. He's Brazilian, a designer, and it suddenly all makes sense to George. This is who I am. This is who I want to be. He can't tell his family. Not yet. He knows his mum would be terrified he'll catch AIDS. He's not telling the media, not the way they've treated him. And then six months in. Anselmo finds out something else. He tells George, I've got it, I've got AIDS. It takes two years to kill him, the big disease with the little name. In that time, George nurses him, looks after him, no songs, no tours, just him and Anselmo to the end. He can't go to the funeral, He's too worried about what the tabloids will say, what photographs they'll print, the headlines they'll write. He tells his family as his mum tells him about her own cancer diagnosis. And when she passes too, he grieves for three years. He feels like it's all over. This man, this star with the fame and the money and adoration feels cursed. The music saves him in the end. He writes a song, Jesus to a Child, for Anselmo. He writes another, spilling his secrets. You have been loved. But it's not out there, not all of it. He's not hiding his sexuality in private, but the world doesn't know. Not yet. And then it all changes once again. It's April 1998. George is in a park in Beverly Hills. He walks into a public toilet, gets followed in by a good-looking man. They do what gay men sometimes do in a straight world. I'll show you mine, you show me yours. That's how he describes it later. Except, the good-looking man is an undercover cop. And the scandal that breaks is, well, strange, looking back. Of course, there's headlines, there's outrage, there are jokes. He's fined and given community service. But when you watch the interviews now, when he's on CNN, when he's on the Letterman show, you don't feel all those things the papers are telling you to feel. You don't feel horror or disgust or anger. You feel sorry for him. Here's what he says. I feel stupid and I feel reckless and weak, but I don't feel any shame. He says, the worst part of being arrested was being photographed with his shirt off looking chubby. Can you imagine two worse things than being fat and gay? You listen to his answers and you like him even more. You feel empathy in a way you didn't expect. That maybe this terrible thing is a good thing after all. No more hiding, freedom to be yourself. Not just hidden away, but when everyone is looking. And then, it's how British it all is. The way he takes the mickey out of his situation laughs at himself. The song he writes about it outside, the video, you'll remember it, the dancing policeman, and the urinals that spin round to make a dance floor, and the toilet with the glitter ball hanging from the ceiling. Yorgios Kyriakos Panayotou, the immigrant's son, meant to be one of them, he's one of us instead being honest, when it's good, when it's bad, when it's anything you want. So now we're back in London, back in the house in Hampstead. The scandal goes and the attention moves on elsewhere. And George sits in this ancient red brick house on top of this hill in an ancient part of London. And fans wait outside and he does nothing. He thinks about Anselmo, about his mother. About something his mum told him. How she found her father's body when he gassed himself in the family's oven. How she found her own brother dead the same way on the exact day that George was born. He thinks about this curse. All this death around him. He smokes weed and he takes Prozac and none of it helps. The Prozac makes his head worse. One minute he's happy, the next he's raging at people. The weed... It just makes him want more. He's up to 25 spliffs a day, the strong stuff, skunk. His dog is getting older, more frail. So he buys a Labrador puppy, a new companion, new life. And that dies too, drowning in the Thames in front of him. He gets told by doctors he needs a back operation, that he could be paralyzed otherwise. And he has the op. They insert metal rods in there And it turns out he didn't need it. And now he's in permanent pain. Depression and fear and loneliness. He thinks, why is God piling so much on me? This is what you see when you walk into the house through the black gates and the white front door. A big painting on the wall, the cover of a book, a Penguin classic. Except it's a made-up one. The title's the giveaway, it says, Incurable Romantic Seeks Dirty Filthy Whore. Out back there's a garden, Japanese trees, a swimming pool, a steam room. George finds it sort of funny. It looks like a posh public toilet. And when he's sitting there with his weed and nothing to do, he starts thinking of it all as a prison instead. He thinks, if you're going to live in a prison, It might as well be a good one. He can't write songs, not anymore. He's got no confidence in them. He'll start one and then bin it. Promise a new single, a Christmas one. Let it slide. He's on sleeping pills, and that messes things up more. He falls asleep in his car at a set of traffic lights, then crashes into the window of a shop round the corner from his house. He's got the weed on him, and that goes before the court too, And he gets eight weeks in prison, a fine, and a five year driving ban. When he talks about it all afterwards, he's the same old British George, laughing at himself, being honest, good and bad. He says, It's my own stupid fault, as usual. There's a new relationship, a man called Kenny Goss, an American from Dallas. He's in the house sometimes, but George is still being George. The papers say he's out on Hampstead Heath doing what he was doing in that park in LA. The police arrest him in a toilet on that hill, give him a caution for possession of Class A and C drugs. And this is his life, this famous man, this singer that so many still adore. He sits at home and smokes and goes out to the Heath and gets older. He cuts the spliffs back to seven or eight a day He tries getting up by 10am, sends his PA out to get him a Starbucks. He has lunch with Kenny, thinks about music, doesn't write any. If it's summer, if it's warm enough, he goes looking out on the heath. Here's what he says to a writer he trusts, a man from the Guardian newspaper. It's a much nicer place to get some quick and honest sex than standing in a bar, eed off your tit shouting at somebody and hoping they want the same thing as you do in bed. When he emails people now, he's got a new way of signing off. Not Yorgios, not Yog, not George. He writes, love, the singing Greek. Laughing at himself, the immigrant son. He says something else too, when other people ask the obvious questions. Why? Why are you like this? Don't you want it back, what you had? And this man, the shy, chubby kid with glasses the superstar everyone knows, the one who feels cursed, he says, I've earned the right to a quiet life. It's not a healthy life how George chooses to live. He's meant to be performing at the Albert Hall, but gets a viral infection and cancels. A month later, he's in hospital with pneumonia. Then he's in intensive care in a coma. He has a tracheotomy. That's when they cut open your windpipe. Put a tube in so you can breathe without your nose or mouth. He's in the coma for three weeks. When he comes out, he says the staff saved his life. He's still laughing at himself somehow. When he wakes up, he has a West Country accent, something called foreign accent syndrome, something that can happen after brain trauma. I basically did two days of stand-up comedy for the doctors. He says... Not that there's anything wrong with the West Country accent, but it's a bit weird when you come from North London. And that's George, as he moves into his sixth decade, damaged but special, laughing at himself, loved by millions, getting better, or so we think. It's still a shock, thinking about how you hear he's died. Christmas Day 2016, no one's watching the news until suddenly they are, a line from his publicist, George Michael has passed away peacefully at home. He's 53. And then it hits you. All the songs you've sung, all the times he's been there in your life, with the blonde hair in Wham, with the stubble on face, with the goatee and shades. That day, you realise. How many people feel the same way? How many people aren't ready for this, not yet? There are celebrity tributes, of course there are, Madonna and Elton John, that's how big he is. There's a 3,000% jump in streaming his music. There's headlines and TV shows and all the old clips when he looks so young. But it's the stories you didn't know that stay with you. The one about him tipping a barmaid £5,000 when he hears she's a student nurse in debt. When he's on Celebrity Who Wants To Be A Millionaire and he says quietly to the producer beforehand, if I lose, I'll just give the charity the money anyway. The woman on Deal Or No Deal who mentions she needs £15,000 for IVF treatment and George secretly phoning the show and saying he'll pay if they can keep it quiet. You think about how when Last Christmas is kept off the number one spot by Do They Know It's Christmas, He gives the royalties to the same Ethiopia famine appeal anyway. You think of all the songs, but you also think about the one he wrote for Anselmo. You have been loved. That's George when the end comes. And the freedom, he finds it in his own way too. Here's something he says in the last few years. He says, people want to see me as tragic with all the cottaging and drug taking. Those things are not what most people aspire to. And he says this, I think it removes people's envy to see your weaknesses, but I don't even see them as weaknesses anymore. It's just who I am. That's George. And that's the story of George Michael. It was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Phil Brown. Here's the books we used for research. Bear, his own story by George Michael. Then Andrew Ridgeley's one, which is called Wham! George and Me. We also used Rob Jovanovic's biography of George Michael and the archives of the BBC, The Guardian and The Times. The music we used in this podcast is from BMG Production Music. If we had to pick three George Michael tracks to listen to right now, we'd say Freedom 90, because it says so much. Waiting for that day, because he sings it so sensationally. And You Have Been Loved, the song for Selmo. for all of us. There'll be a new episode of Death of a Rockstar out every Thursday. The next one is about Otis Redding, and it's one of our best so far. Thanks for listening.
2: The number you have reached is one hundred point seven WMNS. It wasn't just a radio station; it was a lifestyle. Cleveland
1: is, is a rock and roll city for sure. The
2: wrath of, right? of, of,
1: of, 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 of the buzzer. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles: The Wrath of the Buzzard. P R O H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurwitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hey everyone, it's Chris Pandolfi inviting you to check out the new season of my podcast, Inside the Musician's Brain, with new episodes airing now. Hearing it in that room, these guys playing this thing and trying to figure out how to play this song, was mind-blowing. It's so inspiring to know there's so much more to it than you ever thought. And it just opened another door. But when people find faith because they need to, in terms of just filling a void to feel better without actually being better, that's when it becomes a crutch, much like you know, drugs and alcohol do. Man, I don't have all the time in the world here. If I want to be a professional bluegrass musician, I felt like I had to take a very like strategic approach, just trying to get rid of the barriers and, and figure out what those barriers were. The feelings still come, and I have to reckon with that, but I think I have better ways of moving forward and not being stuck, which I think was the killer for me. Catch all that and so much more on the new season of Inside the Musician's Brain.